0: Hello, creeps. Welcome to the Horror Vanguard. I'll be your ghost. I mean, host, for today's exciting tale of terror Serial Mom, or Talking Queer Cinema, The Rust Belt, and Femme with Rachel and Jolie. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, on, on on that um, on that note of filth, everyone, welcome to today's episode of Horror Vanguard. I am one of your hosts, Ash. Um, uh, you you heard John, and you heard a mysterious laughter floating in the ether. We have a special <laughs> guest with us today. Uh, uh, joining us today is Rachel Angeli, uh, author of Rust Belt Femme. Uh, how's it going, John? And how's it going, Rachel?
1: Uh, I am great. I'm I'm super super glad that that Rachel has decided to swing by the HV Crypt.
2: I am also super glad to be here. Thank you both for having me. I'm long time listener, first time caller, and <laughs> uh, I know that joke's been made before, but it's always doesn't get old. Um, yeah, I'm super stoked to be here. And as I shared with both of you, even even as a as a witch. Spooky stuff is hard for me to wa- watch, but but John Waters spooky stuff is definitely in my in my capacity to handle. So I'm very excited. Yes.
0: We're so honored to have you be the guest that breaks the John Waters seal for this show.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm honored.
0: Yeah, I I, pers- I personally can't wait to to I th- I think we're like we we keep coming up with spin-off podcast ideas for mm-hmm. like like we yep. have um there's just so many weird ideas that come to our mind but now I want to do a spin-off John Waters podcast. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that would go uh we would have the John Waters cast, we would have Rom Communism,
1: we would have oh, right, yes. We yes, would yeah. have uh Serial, but it's just us trying to work out who killed Pierre Pasolini for like <laughs> for like 200 episodes. <laughs> um, and and you know what? I think we should make all of them. I think we
0: should make episodes of all of these spin-offs.
2: What better time than quarantine? I, mean,
0: I we nothing but time right now. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah. So as we as we just as we just teased for the audience uh, today today we're getting filthy. We're talking about a John Waters film, uh, but it's not it's not Hag in a black leather jacket. It is Serial Mom. <laughs> <laughs> it's a Fantastic film. But before we get started, before we jump into the movie. Uh, 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 as I mentioned previously, Rachel is the author of Rust Belt Femme, a book that just came out, and it is a fantastic read. I really recommend everybody, everybody pick it up. Uh, it's just a beautifully written memoir. It's very warm. It's, it's just very fantastic.
3: Hmm.
0: Um, uh, so Rachel, if you wouldn't mind uh, telling us a little bit about your book and uh, where people can buy it.
2: Yeah, thank you for that warm introduction. Um, so the book is about my life growing up in Cleveland, Ohio. So it takes place sort of from around when I was four years old to when I left when I was 18, um, with a couple of moments where it sort of flashes forward to more of the present. But um, that's primarily where it takes place. Um, And what I really wanted to do with it, uh, for some sort of backstory, I sort of consider myself an ex-academic. I got my PhD in 2013 and spent many years sort of on the precarious academic labor Market, Um, and I just got really tired of writing academic writing academic research for academic journals that weren't paying me, and that you know
0: (laughs) moods, right? (laughs) Yeah,
2: yes, I know. I yeah, I know you two have no no opinions about higher education or grad school or anything. (laughs) Um, But uh, yeah, so I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. Like, I don't want to keep writing, and I and I don't like dislike theory, obviously, but. Or writing academic research, but certainly not for free when I'd rather be writing other things. So this book actually does have some theory in it. I sort of blend memoir and auto theory, sort of, if listeners are familiar with Maggie Nelson, she's a big inspiration to me. Um, But primarily I wanted to, you know, be able to write more creative nonfiction style. And so it really examines um, class. I grew up uh, working poor and then sort of ventured into a little less poor and then back down again. And so it sort of explores um, that uh, with growing up with a single mom experiencing um, the violence of capitalism. And specifically, it also talks about how that really shaped my gender identity.
0: All right. Uh, so we lost the... Co- uh, <laughs> amazing work Ash. well done <laughs> i am a professional broadcaster <laughs> um yeah uh, so we lost the connection for a second there and we lost rachel uh but you're back and it's wonderful um before we lost you you were talking about your identity as a queer femme if you wanted to pick up from there
2: yeah well i mean a lot of the but and thank you sorry about my internet but um mercury's not even in retrograde so i don't know what the deal is but <laughs> anyway um Yeah, so the book, uh, it's really trying to explore uh, the roots of my personal femme identity, which really, really intersects with the sort of history of femme in the, particularly in the United States um, more broadly. So uh, a lot of sort of femme history will sort of point to a defining moment of this identity really coming into being in queer community uh, as sort of coinciding with the sort of post-industrial revolution um, moment when families are moving out of the sort of agrarian society family units and finding ways to be in social space together, both in the workplace and also in gay bars, which started springing up um, sort of along that same time. And so there's this great ep- uh, essay by John Demilio called Capitalism and Gay Identity. And he's talking about the ways in which capitalism really enabled um, Gay gay identity, despite the fact that homosexual behavior has existed forever, that capitalism really allows those sort of social spaces. Um, And for women, this becomes particularly important uh, for a lot of reasons, uh, largely because one, I think there's a lot of like sort of um, second wave feminism that tries to talk about, you know, the fight for women in the workplace while erasing the fact that poor and working class women have been in the workplace long before second wave feminism. Um, and so we have this moment in time when there are a bunch of women in urban areas and rural areas. Um, but this D'Emilio essay is really citing the sort of urban workplace environment um, as a space where women and women and men and men can meet each other and, you know, have, have social relations. Um, and then of course, ironically, capitalism is also going to then punish, you know, anything that's not sort of heteronormative um, procreative reproductive behavior. Um, so he's sort of exploring the tensions in that. And that felt really fascinating to me because I really understand my, uh, the way I sort of express femme identity, um, as deeply connected to my, my working class upbringing. Um, femme is sort of often aesthetically understood as a sort of excessive femininity, a femininity that is, um, you know, intentionally, hypersexual, that is, um, or I would say, unapologetically sexual, if, if not hypersexual. And um, that doesn't follow sort of norms that are uh, in line with sort of hegemonic decorum, you know, ways that we sort of perform that are that we're sort of taught and disciplined to perform appropriate behavior. And so this intersection of me growing up sometimes poor and sometimes just just above poor and then back down again, um, really revealed to me as I was older and learned about my sort of femme history and started identifying as queer and understanding that I was queer. Um, those things felt really important to sort of illuminate that these sort of material class conditions um, matter to gender and sexuality. And that, yeah, and that also felt important to me because, you know, you know, blah, 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 left discourse, identity politics, etc. It's like, well, identity like is also about material conditions and about economics. And so um, my memoir is like a much more sort of personal, less academic way of sort of exploring all of that. Um, and I also talk about the punk scene, which is what I sort of fell into as a teenager and the anti-war movement. Um, I was politicized after 9/11 and the Iraq War, and so um, there's some fun stuff about sort of like early 2000s radical left culture, and um, yeah, and so it was a fun book to write, even though and also kind of difficult because there was some hard stuff too. But but it was mostly fun, and I'm I'm excited it's in the world.
1: Hell yeah! yeah. <laughs> I mean, as someone as someone who uh, is not from the US and maybe doesn't know a whole lot about this kind of subcultural elements of the Ross belt. Um, this was a like, I love, I loved, loved, loved reading the book. It is, it's beautifully written, obviously. Mm. And it is, it is genuinely so good and important that there are uh, working class Voices that can talk about this intersection of material conditions and social totality, and who we are as working class people, without falling into like hillbilly hillbilly elegy territory. Right. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> um in in lots of ways the book reminds me of um stuff written by Edouard Louis, uh the French writer who wrote the end of Eddie. Which mm. is this? Which is this incredible um, novel about uh, growing up as very poor and gay in mm. a part of France which now votes very heavily for the Front National, mm-hmm. um, and I think it's incredibly important that there is this, um, uh, you know, plurality of working class voices that can talk about um, who we are and where we come from in a way that doesn't kind of fall into. The, the, the kind of traps of stereotyping that mainstream political di- discourse seeks to create. It's a totally. great book. It's a great book. Basically. Thank, that's you. What I'm to- <laughs>
2: <laughs> Thank you so much. That means a lot. And um, yeah, I'm glad that, I mean, yeah, that's definitely one of the big missions that I had in writing. This was like, although I had all these sort of cultural markers of uh, what people in the U S presume to be the sort of Trump voter, like my dad was a race car driver you know, people drink cheap beer, you know, people were poor, like people were white people, you know, all of these things that people sort of presume to be the sort of archetype of the bigot. Um, And although that was true, in some cases, some of those people existed. There's also all of these parts of my early life in that community that completely defies those stereotypes, um, or that actually look like those stereotypes, but defy that politically. And I think, yeah, it's so important that we don't um, presume uh poor poor white folks in particular because we're not going to win if if poor white folks aren't part of our sort of liberation mm-hmm. process um that we don't assume they're always always already inclined to be bigoted or fascist leaning etc and so um it felt good to write about you know my mom who's one of the most um now very left-leaning but certainly growing up was very progressive and bleeding heart liberal and not not like the stereotypes of of what we see in the sort of parachute journalism of who voted for Trump in Middle America,
3: hmm.
1: yeah, i Abs- sorry, go on, Ash.
0: <laughs> no, I was, I was just gonna say I think that's this is this is for me one of the most moving parts of of what you wrote. There are so few stories written by poor people about their lives and the communities they come from. Right, there are there are so few mm-hmm. opportunities to hear stories that, that are th- that are this holistic, right, and that aren't like mm-hmm. you said that kind of like god awful parachute journalism mm-hmm. that that just treats like like all of these poor people from the Rust Belt as like just completely disjointed hicks, right? You know, and like we we need this, we need our own narratives, our own stories, and to start rebuilding a culture that has been intentionally shattered and atomized as both a byproduct of capitalism's culture industry and as an intentional, uh, force designed to destroy and limit our own power,
3: mm-hmm. and, you know,
0: like in, in, in whatever, hopefully large way your book adds to that. And I just think oh. that's that fantastic.
2: Thank Everyone you so much. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you both. That really, that really means a lot. Thank you.
1: I mean, I think to kind of maybe talk a little bit about the, about the history, you know, if you think of, we're basically facing another great depression, right? I think yeah. that's, and in in the uh, early 1900s, the 20s, there was this great tradition of working-class culture, of literature, of storytelling, of mm-hmm. song. You know, you had... Um, and and socialist writers, like you had Upton Sinclair, you had uh, Jack London, you had John Dos Passos. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think as bleak as the economic conditions that we might be facing are, there is a kind of real opportunity that your book is going to tap into of opening a space in which um working people tell and own their own stories uh, stories which are um often complex and painful but ultimately wind towards liberation which is uh, mm-hmm. a, gen- a genuinely beautiful
2: thing hmm. thanks i hope i hope it can contribute to that yeah thank you thank you both Excellent. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Segways. Segways. Segways are so weird. Sort of this is the thing we are just objectively bad at.
2: <laughs> I'll say this I mean, queers love John Waters. I'm a queer person. I'm excited yeah, to talk about John Waters. It. Right. Hey, hey, Ash, will you tell us about this John Waters movie? <laughs> oh,
3: my God. I'm
0: being, I'm, I'm being replaced
2: on my own
3: <laughs> Yeah, we, we were
0: going to save that announcement to the end, but John John is leaving the show to focus his research efforts on who, who killed Pasolini. <laughs> He will, he will be moving to Italy uh, in the coming weeks, despite the pandemic, to find the truth. It's really it's so brave. It's, it's really out there. It's really
1: out there.
3: Um, <laughs> but yeah, as
1: as as your new co-host put it, can you uh, could could you provide us with with what what is this film, Serial Mom, by the iconic working class revolutionary artist John Waters? all about
0: john john waters the the brave uh you know socialist hero who led the people of russia to to the glorious liberation that they had his birthday was yesterday it was just beautiful (laughs) Um, but that that unfortunately uh john john waters never made a movie about his time uh as as the leader (laughs) of the working people of russia so that's that's truly a, a horrible oversight on his part But um, when most people think of John Waters' uh, filmography, they think of divine, they think of filth, they they think of abject art and the limits of the grotesque. That is what John Waters is most known for. It's hag in a black leather jacket and less serial mom. But there are other through lines and undertones that are dramatically underexplored with our legendary pencil mustache hero. One that is so thoroughly and beautifully expressed by Serial Mom is nature. Serial Mom is a film that is deeply woven in to the natural world. The imagery of birds constantly pops back up through this film. The birds bring us to anti-colonial discourse. The birds bring us to discourse on gender and carnism. These birds are ever present in the film, but deeply underanalyzed. To find any understanding understanding of our avian characters, I think it's uh, it's it's educational to turn our attention first to Werner Herzog, who perhaps uh, <laughs> spoke the single greatest line about birds ever ever said, and that's the birds are in misery. I don't think they sing; they just screech in pain. As as Beverly turns through her little bird journal, we see we see pictures of Charles Manson. In between the pages we know the secrets of what she's really doing these birds aren't passive little little music boxes of nature fluttering about and singing they're agents they're fucking they're dying they're killing just like the humans all around them in the story and i think there's no there's no better way to bridge the gap between the filth of john waters and this kind of melodic beauty of the avian world than the uh, 1800s french poet charles Baudelaire. Baudelaire, and I'm paraphrasing here, once wrote that if the worst things in life wove no pleasing patterns in the stuff of the drab canvas we accept as life, it is because we are not bold enough. In his poem, The self tormentor, he said, I am the wound, I am the knife. John Waters is the wound and the knife. He is the hornet that stings to take us back to Herzog. His birds are both melodic creatures of beauty and calculating murderers who wait for their moment to exact their revenge. And that's what this movie's about. That is an accurate. You can find <laughs> that on the IMDB. I was just reading that. So
2: Oh my goodness.
0: <laughs> uh, I, feel, I feel like eventually,
1: uh, Ash, I I, you know, I, I love doing the show. I love I love uh working with you and getting to talk with so many amazing people, but I feel like eventually what the show will be is they will be 180 minute long episodes where we will invite on a guest we'll talk for 10 minutes and then it will be 170 minutes of you monologuing in beautifully sincere (laughs) and poetic prose about the film and then that's where the episode will end (laughs) but that'll be episode like 200 i think we're just going to build up to it
0: Oh my god! Okay, now, now, now it's officially in the books. Episode two hundred is just like a prolonged monologue. <laughs>
3: um,
1: okay, let's. I, I, I feel like maybe before we kind of talk about the film itself and the kind of key points and key ideas that we want to we want to draw out of it, let's kind of. There are there are only a few figures who can make me defend auto theory. Hmm. Um, only a few. <laughs> And John Waters is probably one. So maybe, maybe we could maybe both of you, I'm sure you know a little more than me, could kind of contextualize John Waters a little bit. For for the for the few, for the for the for the people, the young and the naive who have not come across this <laughs> this paragon of of postmodernity. Who, who's John Waters? What's, what's what is what is a John Waters film like? How do we kind of start to approach the
0: text?
2: Yeah. Do you do you want to start Ash or you want me to jump to jump
0: Oh in? Uh, yeah, I'll go I'll go. I mean I'm I'm used to being like thrown under the bus and going first, so I'm ready for it. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah, but a brief encapsulation of, of of John Waters, I think. So John Waters is a filmmaker from Baltimore in the United States. Um he's he's an openly gay man and he is concerned with one thing first and foremost, and that is filth. Mm-hmm. You know, filth is filth in any interpretation. He he wants to Constantly explore the transgressive. He wants to explore the boundary land. You know, his his films are always at the edge of of what is acceptable and what is reasonable. And and he's always faced a lot of backlash for that. His films sometimes have trouble being distributed. Um, I know for Serial Mom, some of the music that he licensed, they charged exorbitant fees because of mm-hmm. how. Of how uh, you know, just kind of like out there, they know John Waters' movies are going to be, and they're <laughs> like, okay, if you're putting our art in this, you're going to pay us a shit ton of money. <laughs> um, but like, I think like you really nailed that, that Rachel, when we're when you said earlier that like, like a lot of queer people know John Waters, and like I'm yeah. no exception, and John Waters just radiates. And I think like especially like when you when you really identify with like more radical interpretations of queer and breaking away from. From kind of like the the homo normative, you know, yeah, like like and like, because that's something that John Waters himself is really antagonistic to. He's really antagonistic to to the idea of replicating heteronormativity in queer spaces, and Absolutely. and I think that's like that's like a key part of his art. But like, um, what would you say?
2: Yeah, I fully agree with that. Um, he's, I mean, certainly, you know, camp is the sort of word that oh yeah is contested, and you know, it's like. You know it when you see it, kind of thing. And certainly, people associate John Waters with camp, which, of course, is also, you know, sort of a queer art form, um, arguably. Um, and so much of that is exactly what you said: sort of resisting hetero and homonormativity, um, not trying to, not trying to appeal to respectability politics in any regard.
3: Oh yeah.
2: I mean, just um, you know, just leaning in to. Uh, the idea that you know that queer people are weird sexual like sometimes disgusting you know whether his figures in his movies are actually queer people or mm-hmm. if the figures are queered in a sort of verb sense um mm. yeah he doesn't he's not trying to make anybody comfortable
0: definitely
1: and I've, true <laughs> and i've always i've always thought though that i've always thought that he's a he's a filmmaker an artist who has um. Yes, there's there's the filth, but there's also a kind of beauty in there. That the 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 trash is beautiful mm-hmm. <laughs> in, in its in its in its own way. And actually, the more the more scatological or shocking or transgressive, there
0: is a kind of art of the sublime to it.
1: Absolutely,
2: I I, I
0: totally agree. And actually, like I've always found John Waters' m- movies to be really comforting. Like these are these are some of my like okay like I need a happy relaxing movie I'm just gonna put on <laughs> something from John Waters because it's like there are other people out there in this world who are just like fundamentally devastatingly weird.
3: <laughs> like, it's, it's it's good to
0: know on a fundamental level that you're not alone, and I think that's one of the things that John Waters movies kind of express in this really mm-hmm. like to to be absolutely earnest for a moment. Like that is one of the most beautiful things about John Waters is that he never feels feels a negative kind of shame when when he when he's making this art and his art gets really out there sometimes you know like yeah. I've, I've, I've mentioned um hag in a black leather jacket a couple times right now it is really out there it is really transgressive and it was his first his first short movie i haven't
1: and seen that yeah. one yeah so that that's a kind of that's a kind of way in and i think i think Actually, both of you put it very, very beautifully and very, um, very, you know, correct in my understanding of Waters and, and their work as well. Um, I also I also love that John Waters is like a massive bibliophile as well. Uh, like just loves books. There's mm-hmm. this great there's this great article I read um, where it's like he's a man with like eight thousand books in his house. And oh. and one of them and that, you know, it might be like Tashan. uh coffee table books of art and the other one might and the one next to it might be like the big book book of butts uh, <laughs> and i'm like of course of course and i think that combination of determinedly like what you might call low culture with a very uh a cultural kind of appropriation of just like taking anything that looks interesting and shiny and and fun and kind of just smashing it together to see what you can bring out is another thing that's really key to him, and I think is a great way of understanding
0: serial mom as well.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So let's 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 dig in. Let's dig in. Let's sit down at the dinner table together and <laughs> and uh, calmly and amicably discuss uh, what it means to have a family. <laughs> 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 like I I like I die laughing every time I see the opening sequence of this movie because it, it is the most like barely held together, leave it to beaver shit. And it is fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> it's fantastic. It's so like, it 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 sticks it so well that it's, it just comes off as like simultaneously hilarious and so painfully scathing of the world around us.
2: Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, abs- absolutely. And I think as somebody who grew up with nothing close to that, it's, it's so like cathartic to see mm-hmm. to see that depiction of two point five kids, a white picket fence, you know, mom and dad, et cetera, um actually being like this like headquarters of the most violence oh, <laughs> um, yeah. that that is, you know, conceivable. and and that that's juxtaposed to Beverly's commitment to following. Rules of pol- like decorum, politeness, um, law and order a little bit. The the seat there's this the great moment when she's telling Scotty to wear a seatbelt and she says it's the law and it's like as right. she's trying to murder him <laughs> and it's just like okay yeah like normative upper class like petite bourgeois white women think they are above the law in a way that allows them to enforce the law. And it's just like, John Waters nailed it. Mm-hmm.
0: It's also Matthew Lillard's first role.
2: Yeah.
0: And it was little, little young Matthew Lillard. It was just my heart broke. Mm. It's fan, fan, SLC punk, the, the live action, oh, yeah. Scooby Doo movie like Matthew Lillard, just like out of, out of all the actors I can think of right now, he is batting a thousand.
1: I mean I think that I think that point about decorum is really interesting. And like after watch I rewatched it today and sort of my kind of first thought after finishing it was this is basically John Wood is making the very good point that the heteronormative American bourgeois dream is essentially a kink. This, this, you know, let's, let's stop pretending that this is in any way kind of normal in big inverted commas, whatever that might mean. And just, could can, can we not just admit this is, this is just as much uh, a kink as the uh, LGBT community that is ostracized for its so-called sexual deviancy. You know, that's, that's what he's, he's making the point about. Because they go back to their happy lives, right? They mm-hmm. they uncover th- they uncover this like great traumatic secret. The justice system is held up as the kind of complete joke that it is. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, but but ultimately, it's like,
0: well, nobody say anything to mom because otherwise, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think um, it's kind of like um, what what you're both saying just kind of really connects for me, right? Because it's so like performative.
3: Mm-hmm. you know and like yeah. i think
0: um i i grew up in situations in conditions that sound like very similar to, to what to what you had rachel and like all of mm-hmm. the families who had like mom and dad 2.5 kids white picket fence like all of them were were predicated upon horrifying secrets mm-hmm. nightmarish violence like like barely concealed agony and like there, there's something deeply performative about that right because it, it, right. it doesn't doesn't truly exist. It's always a display you're putting on for the world. It's a display you're putting on for to continue the system and continue this cycle. Because if you become honest about those things, if you become a conf- you become in conversation with them, it dismantles a lot of these societal power structures.
2: Right, exactly, and that and that in order to perf- perform that, you have to have the resources to perform it. Like oh, yeah. you, know, mm-hmm. you know, like poor folks can't hide behind a nice house um, or a nice dress, uh, et cetera. So yeah, that's so true.
0: Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people don't have the money to replace their Fabergé eggs. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> and of course, like adherence to those rules
1: of social decorum um, is a way of expressing a kind of bourgeois desire. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Right, so you you want something through keeping to those rules, and if there are people who don't keep to those rules, uh, like wearing white after Labor Day, <laughs> those those people not only not only do you want to punish those people, but those people need to be punished because otherwise the regulatory framework for your own desire doesn't make any sense anymore.
3: Mm.
2: Yes, exactly. Yeah, which is like why there is the rise of fascism.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. Did we just go from serial mom to the rise of fascism?
2: I mean, it's, it's a threat to Beverly's Beverly's ability to stay on top is that she is able to follow a particular set of guidelines in which she is high on the totem pole. When people start, breaking that and wearing white shoes in a court of law after labor day
3: it's <laughs> Hacking. the world is
2: on its head yeah right <laughs> yeah <laughs> so i mean and that's what is what is the rise of fascism if not white people being afraid of not having their secure place on the totem pole mm-hmm.
0: you know i really i never would have thought of that line of analysis that is just kind of like Mind-quakingly beautiful, thank you for that. <laughs> but like now, now that you mention it, I think it, I think it really holds water. Like I think it's really sound, you know. Because like, what, what is, what is another like foundational component of fascism, if not the like mass centralization and the mass hoarding of like access to resource and power? Yeah. And and you know, through the end of the film, what what is Beverly continuing to accomplish? Is that right? You know, she's she's literally killing off everyone who's a threat to her accumul- her, her accumulation of social capital and by the end of the movie like she she has been able to manipulate uh this supposedly equal supposedly fair legal system right from from the most bald face obvious murder <laughs> <laughs> and and in the end she's got like you know her family is is now way more wealthy than they've ever been they're now famous they're, right. they're they're seen as heroes because of serial killer ideation and like like that is the, this is like this is literally Pasolini's 120 Days of Sodom, but done by John Waters.
1: <laughs> I mean, thinking about it though, is that there's a, there's a way of potentially ending this? Like, I think it's really important. This film is a satire, um, because form determines content in a lot of ways with film, right? Mm-hmm. So, obviously, the satirical ending is we go back to our beginning, right? But there's a potential there's a that the, the absent ending here which is a kind of more sincere, dare I say, revolutionary kind of filmmaking Mm -hmm. is, is um, family abolition and the abandonment of bourgeois norms. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so we, we dissolve the pretense of the happy domesticity because it was a lie. Anyway, we have our kind of liberated sexual and, and libidinal desires that can be played out in the world because, you know, you don't need to care what the neighbors think and fuck the justice system because it'll let you off anyway um but but what i love is that we go nope we're gonna find out that really uh bourgeois suburbia is a hotbed of sexual repression and violence but we all pretend that it isn't right (laughs) we're we're all just gonna go no it's fine it's fine and now they're gonna get a movie deal out of it because that is because that is how that is how suburbia functions that's the that that's it's at its ideological functioning is just kind of beautifully laid bare right at the end. And I think the tie in to, to what Ash said about serial killer ideation is really important in understanding this, I think kind of particularly American suburbia.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, to quickly make a note, tying it to the sort of, um, natural world that Ash, you so beautifully spoke about. Um, I think the, the recycling and the trash that Mm -hmm. the way that that functions in the movie is also like, you know, there are these moments when, you know, there are these glimmers of Beverly, like maybe like I'm a vegan. So I also don't like watching people eat birds. Um, I care about the earth. I also don't like if people don't recycle, but there's, there's this, it's, it's so rooted in Beverly's not here for liberation of, of yeah. <laughs> <what it is. laughs> her, her desires are about keeping the suburbs clean and keeping like the dinner plate pristine. And so, you know, it's like, what, what are your motivations for the things that you want? And mm. so anyway, I, yeah. And I just think it's interesting that the moment when we're, uh, you know, she wants, basically we, there's a figure who doesn't recycle. and And so that's, I'm just also thinking about this sort of notion of trash, which is something I think about a lot in terms of having grown up in a community that could, you know, was sort of could be understood as trashy given, given Mm -hmm. the sort of markers of what that aesthetic means. And again, sort of like how I perform femininity by like leaning into that trashiness and just thinking about like how revolting trash is to, to Beverly. Um, but not because she cares about the earth but because she cares about keeping the suburbs clean
1: i mean that was a really that was a really big part of like 90s green discourse wasn't it this mm-hmm. whole thing of, this whole thing of like don't you want your children to have clean air
3: <laughs> and, <laughs> and and
1: and on a certain level you go well yeah that's that's like recycling is a good thing but i think your point about what is it that you want through through this right is re- is really crucial because what we want is a world in which we can continue capitalist conspicuous consumption that's right. what we want mm-hmm. and so we we have to recycle because mm-hmm. that can be made you know those drinks cans can be made into new cans right um not we could move away from extractivism and from the 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 kind of desecration of the natural world
2: exactly John, would you say more about the differences you keep saying, you keep specifying American suburbs and sort of American class. And can you talk more about how that's different in the UK? Uh,
1: So, so here's my, here's my comparison, which is that this film is basically, there is, there is basically a British version of this film, um, which is, uh, or in many ways, sort of a shot-for-shot remake, hmm. uh, but but with a few differences. It's called Keeping Mum. Uh, it is um, it is about um, it's about another it's about another woman, uh, female serial killer. This time, played by Dame Maggie Smith, uh, who finds her um, long-lost daughter, who has gotten married and has their have their own kind of um, middle-class dream uh, and lots of murders start happening um, but in this case it do- it isn't happening in kind of like picket fence suburbia it's happening in the English countryside and she's mm. married she's married to a vicar who is very sexually disinterested uh, the daughter do- uh, the daughter and so Maggie Smith's character comes up turns up as and pretends to be their housekeeper and it's basically like, what if your housekeeper could literally fix all of your life's problems, but did it by murdering everybody who was making your life
3: inconvenient?
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, I really recommend it. And it's what's really interesting is that like the, the fantasy project that the film that Keeping Mum presents is like, you move to the country and you have this beautiful kind of moral existence uh and the people who are coming to to inspect your property have been drowned in the village lake uh and they'll never bother you again uh, <laughs> or your your ne- your neighbors annoying dog that keeps you up all night has been murdered by being beaten to death with a frying pan and then Aww. buried um it's uh, yeah um but what's interesting <laughs> but, moving past moving past that but what's interesting is like that's that's the kind of like idealized Um, myth almost mythologize like what does it mean to have a kind of successful English sort of life Mm. in a very particular sort of class position and it's really interesting to compare it to this film where you see like what the dream is not the beautiful house in the country where you're where you're a kind of part of the village community and everybody thinks very well of you Mm -hmm. here it's like you're in you're in your the kind of white picket fences that everybody's got and the houses which look very similar and the neighbors who all secretly hate one another yeah Um, but you're the only one who's brave enough (laughs) to actually act on those feelings by for example beating beating your neighbor to death with a leg of lamb whilst they're (laughs) they're singing along for Annie right which is (laughs) Maybe my favorite scene in the whole film. <laughs> but, 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 that's, but that's what I mean when I say that. I think this show is a kind of, it's a really good satir- satire of a particular kind of American bourgeois suburbia.
2: Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Thanks for sharing that.
1: Uh, definitely watch Keeping Mom. It's really It's really interesting, especially in dialogue with this film.
2: Yeah. Yeah, sounds like it um okay transition somebody transition <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh yeah yes <clears throat> oh geez <clears throat> oh god <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah that was it was really interesting john thank you it's definitely definitely interesting class comparisons going on as how how the how the uh petite bourgeoisie manifests between america and the uk um, one thing, one thing that I would like to ask, uh, Rachel though, is, so, you know, your book, your book is entitled Rust Belt Femme. You identify as a queer femme. Um, John, John Waters is definitely antagonistic to gender boundaries, right? Like he is mm-hmm. exploring those. And like, you know, obviously we can point, point to his, like, you know, career long partnership with divine, uh, mm-hmm. possibly one of the most famous drag Queens up until, uh, modernity when they became really popular. hmm Um, but I wonder if you could comment on like, you know, queerness, femme, and serial mom. (laughs)
2: Yeah. So I think um, femme shows up in complicated ways in serial mom. There, there's a, there's sort of a, as I hope I've made, I made clear sort of in talking about my book, femme is much deeper than just like an aesthetic and femme can look a lot of different ways. And there are a lot of non-binary femmes and, Femmes who don't necessarily, you know, who don't, that there's nothing sort of legibly feminine necessarily in their sort of performance of gender. Um, But there's also sort of a history of femme aesthetic that is often recognizable in queer communities. And one of those is the sort of like reclaiming and exaggeration of the sort of domestic goddess so there's like a lot of um associations with a certain like type of kind of soft femme with like vintage clothes and very like betty page meets june cleaver um you know lots of retro vintage online stores are just like look like femme you know femme dictionary pages basically um so there's this moment when like you know, as a femme, I'm like, do I, am I going to be rooting for Kathleen Turner here? Like she, she, you know, I kind of like, like, I like that she, you know, knows how to find a nice, put a, put on a, put herself together in a nice dress and put her <laughs> hair and wear her lipstick and her pearls. Like there's, there's something that I feel, you know, sort of drawn to in that. Um, but, but there's, but, but her, her type of subversion is not, she's obviously subverting that because she's a violent killer. Um, And also, you know, very sexual and um, uh, likes horror movies, as we find out when she's watching with Matthew Lillard. Um, But she's not subverting it in any sort of left way. (laughs) And I think that although, you know, certainly, unfortunately, not all queer people are leftists, um, I think any good femme identity is also rooted in in a sort of politics that is anti-capitalist and anti-racist and anti-oppression, um, which Kathleen Turner is not. So that's one comment I'll make is that <laughs> sort of this aesthetic moment that it's like, well, um, but she just doesn't follow through because her her subversion of that femininity is just, it's reactionary and not, um, not liberatory. So that's like one comment I'd make. I mean, I think um, Yeah it's interesting you know I was trying to sort of see if there you know I guess we see I don't know that we can really note any other characters as sort of visibly queer even though again he's like queering he's queering the whole family unit but Mm -hmm. um, yeah did you did you all read do any other sort of reading into like queerness in the film that's that's like explicit in that way
0: uh, uh, yeah, they're, they're, but it's all like minor characters, so it's kind of hard to create like a lot of um, strong, strong kind of like through lines to these reads. But there's Birdie, uh, Matthew Little's partner.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um,
0: like, like there's definitely some some very kind of like strong John Waters gender play going on with that character
3: for sure. Mm-hmm. And then there's yeah.
0: the, the band, like, what, what were they called? Like the camel yep. toes or something.
3: Yep. Yep. Health seven. Yeah.
0: And then like, and then, and then there's that of course. And then like, you know, it's, it's also like, we're, we're getting a lot of like classic appearances from John Waters stable of actors. Um, You know, like the, the woman who plays hatchet face and Crybaby is in one of the scenes, you know? So there's kind of like, I'm, I'm always tempted to just kind of like queer the entirety of a John Waters film because right. like John Waters is his own, like, like closed system, right? He's his own. It's it's like it's like one of those like uh like Erlenmeyer flasks filled with filled with like moss and stuff, you know, it just grows queerness naturally. <laughs>
2: yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. I think
1: I think the point that you were both drawing out of there is there are there are potentially queer coded characters, but there is also a lot of queering as a verb happening. Um, and i i really think that this ties into um the idea of the family mm-hmm. as well um and the ways in which uh because what the like the what's the the big inciting incident is the PTA is going to see the the maths teacher uh, and the maths teacher has honed in on this thing about um her parenting and her child that, that, that does not, that is not normative, um, which is uh, the love for horror movies. And horror movies have often been used as a way of signaling um, non-normativity, mm-hmm. non-compliance, outsider status. And yeah. I think it's really, really telling that, it, that the teacher goes, well, this is clearly if you're, you're failing, it isn't, it isn't an agential choice. You have done something wrong uh to this to your to your child Mm -hmm. uh and that that is isn't it that's what leads to the maths teacher getting uh absolutely run the (laughs) fuck over (laughs) multiple multiple times (laughs) in the parking lot of the school but it's isn't it so interesting that like um horror is used as the marker of of the non-normative here where it's like there is something, it's not, it's not something that they've done. It's about who they are is, is wrong somehow. It doesn't fit. And they immediately suggest a referral to a psychiatric medical authority. Right. You know, have you thought about therapy? And I'm like, hang on. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Cause I think, th- I still think horror in, in, in the kind of wider American cultural imaginary still has that power to be dangerous and subversive and a space in of the non-normative
2: yeah and that intersection of like so this is also very queer and that you know queer people were and in many cases still are seen as depraved needing medical if not criminalized you know there's this moment of attempting to criminalize it and then also attempting to institutionalize it and so we see this you know i'm not going to compare the oppression of horror movie fans to queer people, obviously, but there are these interesting moments that um, subversive interests is sort of an umbrella term that I'm using very lightly, but um, desires, subversive desires, I I suppose we could say um, are policed in very similar ways. And there's a lot of really great literature on um, the intersection of queerness and um, communism and the red scare and how those things were, you know, you know, and go back to the witch hunts, of course, you know, there's always these sort of parallels, like anything that doesn't fit within. Um, Yeah. Any like sort of hegemonic normativity in the service of the status quo uh, is seen as sick, um, if not criminal. And that's so true with horror. I mean, yeah, just like, yeah. Look at Columbine, et cetera.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, like, to just kind of on like a, 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 like, I guess, like super material, super functional level, right? Like, 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 what what is being othered other than being marked with monstrosity, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So some, some manifestation of the societal hegemonic, the curiarchy, whatever, like, whether it's by race or, or by gender or by like, literally anything, like if, if the oppressive hegemonic structure others you you are labeled as monstrous right mm-hmm. like how how often do we get like 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 the horrifying talk of like oh like you gotta watch out for queers around children because right. they're, they're sex criminals and like like oh well like i i won't trust that guy because he's this ethnicity and then they're of ill repute or, or like of course like you know all of these horrible tropes and these bigoted ways of thinking you know like they they have the exact same energy as how we talk about the monstrous, right? Look at how the American Republican party talks about refugees, you know, trying to come right. to the Southern border. They, they use all of the same phrasing all of the same language as people who talk about zombies.
2: Yeah. You yeah. know, and,
0: and the, the overlap there is, is deeply intentional, you know, like, like there, it is meant to signal that they are a non-human others. That is something to be feared. And in that fear, you have the authority and the right to dismiss and exterminate. Yeah. And I think flowing back in the other direction that creates the natural relationship between the monstrous and the other,
3: mm, you know, yeah. like that's,
0: that's why there are so many like John Waters of the world, right? There, there are so many like, you know, like queers showing up in horror and stuff like that is because like, you know, if you spend your whole life being told that you're some kind of a monster, eventually you're like, oh, well, okay, maybe I like monsters.
2: then. Right. Totally. Yeah. Have you all seen the celluloid closet? I know you gotta see it it's like a classic it's like from fucking 1990 or something it's pretty old at this point but it's so good and it's just there's it's a collection of gay representation and queer representation in in movies and just like the amount just like seeing this sort of montage of queer villains and and particularly like queer vampires and queer Mm -hmm. um very scary queer figures who are not noted as explicitly queer it's just like it's overwhelming to see all of them lined up in a row um, in this, in the documentary about, about that representation. It's really, it's a highly recommended, but yeah, that's so true.
1: And yeah. So, uh, you know, obviously don't, we don't want to draw the the equivalents, but like on a kind of symbolic level, you know, uh, horror has always been as always for the, all the reasons that Ash was talking about horror has often been uh, a place where um, anyone who has been made to feel like an outsider, um people who are uh, immigrants poor working class queer trans have often found a place in ho- in in uh, the, uh, the horror community because even if that is a contested place it's a place where monstrosity can be if that's what has been pushed onto you uh, it's sort of like what you're talking about with with femme mm-hmm. you can identify yeah. with that and take it back and perform it in um your own ways yeah and i think i think the flip side of this uh, in this film is the way in which we kind of deconstruct the normal which seeks to other yeah so so oh well you're not you're not this is this is not a normal boy who if he watches uh um Um. blood blood feast (laughs) or is watching texas chainsaw massacre Uh, but at the same time we find out that like there is just as much grotesquery and, and filth and kind of uh, abject bubbling away under the surface of, of, of the normal. And if all you need to do is kind of look in the window at the right time, and you'll see something which uh, is just as kind of disturbing and monstrous. Uh, which is exactly what happens when we when we get to see the couple at dinner, which is a really kind of like oh uh, scene <laughs> yeah. in the way that it's done.
2: Yeah, there's there's the grotesque and the filth for you.
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'm also thinking about this. The moment um, we have this, we have this eyewitness to to the murder of the, of the man. Oh
3: yeah, right? mm-hmm.
2: and so I'm just thinking about this like this missed opportunity. So we have we have Beverly experiencing on a very small scale what it's like to feel a little bit othered because she's being told, as we just discussed, that she's a bad mother for because her son watches horror movies and that perhaps he needs medical help. And there's this, instead of finding an opportunity for solidarity with people who are othered, she needs to find a way to just stay higher on top and get rid of anybody who, who tells her that she's, that she's wrong or bad in any way. And, you know, the upper, you know, we see this very explicitly when she's decides to um, basically dismiss this eyewitness because, of, because she's a drug user. So we also have this like also sort of otherized medicalized criminalized behavior. Um, and that enables Beverly to say, Okay, I'm going to do the the same the same thing that the math teacher did to me. I'm going to do to you and and dismiss you as depraved and and not legitimate, um, and just ha- what a shame to 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 not just lean into solidarity and instead just killed people. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I think but, I think but- like. <clears throat> If, if I were to suggest, like, like one of the fundamental, like, I guess, flaws of Beverly's analysis, what <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> leads her down this ill-fated path is that, like, it's it, it's a fundamentally liberal one. It's it's mm-hmm. individualistic, right? Yeah. She 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 wants to protect the status quo by engaging in individual action, right? Hence her uh, passion for recycling. Mm-hmm. You know, re- re- recycling—it's sure it's good. You know, we should we should help the world, but recycling is also the great corporate scam, right? Yep. Yep. These companies just dump mountains of garbage onto the consumer, and they're like, "Ah, eh, you you idiots, deal with it. I don't care." Right? You know, and like that's that's kind of where Beverly's at, right? She wants everybody to individually solve all of their problems. Yeah. <clears throat> and like, I I really like that about the movie is like, what's the what's the kind of the logical conclusion of that? It's become a serial killer. Right. <laughs>
3: Well,
1: yeah, I mean, let's let's kind of just be explicit about it for for that kind of middle class bourgeois existence that that solidarity that you were talking about isn't possible. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, because it runs completely counter to literally everything else that underpins that entire way of life. Yeah, right. Everything is a zero-sum game, right? If you get a nicer house, it has to be at the expense of your neighbor. Right. You know, if you if you're recycling but your neighbor isn't, that's their moral failure, not an exposure of the way that this is, as Ash pointed out, a massive corporate scam. Right. <laughs> a, a, and a way of in and it further individualizes what is a systemic problem. Um But like that kind of solidarity isn't isn't possible. So like this is a film basically about that takes ver- very seriously and just accelerates to the logical end point the 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 ideological and and kind of material conditions of the white american middle classes yeah. like that that's that is the logical end point of, of it happening which is why it ends in celebrity right which is mm-hmm. why it ends in celebrity so
2: true so true yeah yes i mean you said it
0: yeah that's 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 one of the things about this movie that i find really interesting right is because we're living in a moment where like true crime has never been as popular as it is right now
2: yeah
0: right like i mean like true true crime podcasts are the logical successor of like unsolved mysteries yeah you know uh you're at least like on some of unsolved mysteries more real episodes and not necessarily like ghosts and ufos but like like, and like, there are so many problems with the true crime podcasting world and like Netflix's true crime documentary series that they like to produce. You know, like, there's this, there's this, this fetishism. Fetish, oh, God. There's this hyper focus on, <laughs> on um, the procedural nature of crime, on yeah. solving a crime, on the societal frameworks we rig around crime. And it turns criminals into like, these, these almost like, uh, like it does so much hagiography for them, Mm -hmm. you know, and like criminals of all stripe too. And like, you get, you get like criminals who are like ostensibly good, like bank robbers, like outside of the fact that like, sure, they might murder some people like like bank robbing is a good thing to do. That's a morally correct decision (laughs) to take money away from banks by whatever means possible. (laughs) You know, and like it's it's because they're pirates, they're modern pirates. Mm-hmm. And then like you have you have worse criminals, like what, what's that new Netflix show, like Tiger, Tiger, Tiger Dude?
3: King. Tiger, Tiger King. King.
0: Like, like like the there's all this like Tiger King hagiography hey, now, and it's painting this Tiger King guy as like this like wild, queer icon saint, but like he's also like a really abusive weirdo. Like like he's a total creep. Like like the uh the, the show. Is is doing this really weird balancing act where it wants you to really like him and to really buy his character as the hero, but at the same time, like they have to juggle that with the fact that like he he is legitimately a creep.
2: I just have to jump in because I'm I do a lot of thinking about Tiger King, um, and I would love to come back and talk to you guys about Tiger King. So I'll just make this very brief. There's it's kind of horror ish. Um, there's a an attempted murder. Um, I actually. Was thinking about Tiger King when I listened to your episode on society and you, Ash, you were talking, you had a lovely sort of monologue about the, (laughs) um, the ways in which the sort of fantastical freaks of Maury Povich and Jerry Springer, Mm -hmm. um, are treated as, so deeply other as a way for the rest of the working class to separate ourselves from them. Yes, And I actually think a lot of that is happening in tiger King. Yes. There is a little bit of folk heroism that happens in that show, but I also think like the amount of memes and jokes that have come at his expense.
0: Oh yeah. Totally. The expense
2: of a man who's has a lot of trauma was kicked out of his home for being gay and yes. tried to kill himself because of that. And like, is lived in poverty even when he owned the zoo i mean he lived in a glorified trailer basically um like that i don't know there's something happening there yes he i'm not defending his misogyny or his animal animal abuse that's for sure but i think there's something something connected to what you talked about on that other episode too with with that and, and then very much in line with like because when I saw the aesthetics of of Tiger King's zoo, I was like, "Those are my, my those are my people." <laughs> like, yeah. So I don't know. Anyway, sorry. Absolutely. Go ahead. <laughs> oh no,
0: t- totally. I was gonna say, like, when I saw like the promotional material, and, like I had no idea who Tiger Tiger King guy was, and when when I, when I saw him dressed like that, I'm like, oh, like, I, is this guy like a third cousin or something? <laughs> like... <laughs> but to connect this to connect this back to
1: to Serial Mom, what I think is really interesting about what you're saying and i remember that bit from the society episode is like i think a really important question is to ask who gets to be outrageous Mm yes and Mm -hmm. and, and violent and transgressive yeah who get who gets who is allowed to do that and there is a certain kind of um voyeurism of of working class excess Mm -hmm. which has which has run through i mean arguably i think you could say this is run through print media since at least the 1700s if not longer um but there is you know the the violence and 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 um the transgression of working people of poor people is turned into a consumable spectacle yeah. the violence and exploitation and murder of the middle classes is normalized and hidden away uh, but is also turned into that media spectacle but one is a warning the other is an aspiration mm. Mm, you know totally. you can you can you can you can run over your kids maths teacher but if you are a rich white lady from the suburbs you're going to get a made for tv miniseries right. from netflix where you'll be where it's suzanne summers right. who'll be playing <laughs> you and your t-shirts will be great
3: right <laughs>
0: yeah yeah totally and like I, I think that that's really like like what you're saying is so spot on for what this movie is talking about. And, f- and for like, really, because like, like this, this movie does a lot of true crime stuff, right? You always see the like, the, the time code is always shown on the bottom of the screen. Yep. And it's like, it's totally pointless, you yeah. know, from like a cinematic perspective that that time code isn't doing anything for us. Right. You know, like like we like the time the time is never disjointed, so we don't need to know what time it is. <laughs> it's it's always like really oddly specific times. It's so true crime. Yeah. But like who 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 gets the like like re- really like weirdly sexy Netflix documentaries? Who gets to be the hot serial killer? Yeah. And who is just a murderer? Right. And like like how often does that just fall on racial lines?
2: Yeah,
0: mm-hmm.
2: yeah absolutely absolutely
0: yeah we need to do an episode about tiger
1: king
2: (laughs) i think you can justify it as as horror adjacent
0: oh we could justify anything as
1: (laughs) (laughs) as 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 i i now no longer say this is a joke but all films are horror films
3: yeah (laughs)
0: <laughs> i mean like like literally like two days ago i was tweeting about julie and julia as being one of the <laughs> scariest movies i've seen in the last like four years
2: that's amazing
0: it's deeply frightening <laughs> um but yeah we're, <laughs> is- we're we're coming to the close of the episode so is there is there any like final thoughts we want to throw in about uh today's film uh it's
1: it's really good it's really funny it uh i feel like i feel like we haven't talked about that nearly enough yeah. because we've been we've been we've been very serious <laughs> and we've been very and we've been very intellectual but it's also but it's also really funny um mm-hmm. yep if, totally if you if you want to if you want to know uh, it's a documentary if you really want to know what what it's like behind all of those norman rockwell <laughs> picket fences this is what you need to watch
2: yeah i second that i think i think we said sort of all the yeah, the sort of like a big analysis, but I second that it's very funny. It's very fun to see um all the actors, young Matthew Lillard, uh, <laughs> Kathleen Turner. I mean, one of Ca- I think Kathleen Turner's best role. I'm just I'm just going to say it. Um, just put it out there. Yeah, I'm just yeah. <laughs> don't don't at me. Um, but uh yeah, I think I think I can put a pause on on my comments. Ash
3: I
0: I just want to agree with everyone. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, this this movie is just so much fun. It, it's it's just such such a good ride, and John John Waters is just a solid filmmaker. And even his early stuff where it's really clunky and weird, like he just has that intuitive understanding of speaking through cinema.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And like like this work, like Serial Mom, and his later films are just like this is polished John Waters. So it's great. Yeah,
2: yeah for sure.
0: Uh, So one more, one more time for our listeners, uh, Rachel, if you wouldn't mind, uh, letting us know who you are, where we can find you online, uh, more importantly, where we can buy or not more importantly, equally important (laughs) where we can buy your book.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Um, so the best place to buy my book is beltpublishing.com. Uh, that is my wonderful independent press, um, woman owned, woman founded, woman run, uh, press that lives in my hometown of Cleveland, Ohio. Um, and I just can't say enough good things about them. So please buy directly from them. That helps them a lot. Um, and you can find me on primarily Instagram and Twitter. My handle is difficult to spell and annoying, but I'm not going to change it because I've had it for years. <laughs> um, it's Rebel Girl Rachel. And on Instagram, there is an E in Rebel. There is no I in Girl, G R R L. And then my name, which is also complicated R A E C H E L. And on Twitter, there is no E in Rebel because I didn't have enough characters. So (laughs) you can also just search Rachel Angelie and you'll find me. Um, Yeah, but find me there. Uh, And yeah, I'm just so, so happy that I got to talk to you guys.
0: Thank you so much. And of course, uh, links to everything will be down in the show notes. And uh, yeah, I really just want to just just go out on encouraging everyone to read this book because it is fantastic.
2: Mm -hmm. Thank you.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much. And thank you uh, to all of you for listening wherever you are in the world, whatever you're doing. um, Do hope that uh, you are staying safe and staying well. Um, Please do say hello. Uh, Ash and I both are spending way too much time online. Mm -hmm. Um, But do do say hi. We're both on social media and please do follow um, the show at Horror Vanguard. and, And we will see you all next time.
0: Thanks for tuning in, creeps. And remember, stay spooky.